Hello, I'm Kaya Willoughby, and joining me is Claire White. Hello. And this is Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We're here to talk about new and old creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And today we're talking about a very, uh, an indie film, a set of indie films, um, known as the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Right. Claire, for all those out there who have grown up under a rock and don't know anything about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, could you explain for them? I sure can. The Lord of the Rings films are set in a magical, mythical land called Middle-earth that is in danger of being overrun by the evil demigod Sauron and his forces of darkness. Early on, it becomes apparent that the only way to defeat Sauron is to destroy his ring of power by throwing it into the volcano it was created in that happens to be in the heart of his stronghold. Fun fact, our producer James Foey actually thought Sauron was the uh, the hero of the story when he read the books oh, for the I, first time. Oh, I can see why you would think yeah, that. Yeah. The task of throwing the ring into the volcano falls to Frodo Baggins, a hobbit, or halfling, if you will, from a peaceful land called the Shire, who must, with some trusted companions, set out on a seemingly impossible mission to save the world. Of course, there is much more, but I assume you all don't have the patience to be here for nine hours, and that most of you listening to a podcast called Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures already have some basic knowledge of the Lord of the Rings story. Uh, Claire. Second fun fact, uh, the Lord of the Rings films in their totality actually run about 11 hours and 41 minutes. Oh, I was so gonna, it's even more than nine hours. I was going to do the abridged version. Of course, you see. sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> there are three Lord of the Rings films, like Kyle mentioned. It is a trilogy. There is The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. They were released in 2001, 2002, and 2003. And they star Elijah Wood, Sean Astin, Viggo Mortensen, Sir Ian McKellen, Sir Christopher Lee, and Matt anymore. They are directed by Peter Jackson and between the three films have won 17 Oscars. Which is quite a lot of Oscars. I also want to bring up the fact that uh, my voice is is kind of gone. Yeah, it sounds good, Kyle. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I karaoke'd too hard a couple days ago. And <laughs> too, hard still, and too, <laughs> too hard and too fast. Too hard and too fast. And I'm still feeling the effects. Yeah, well, you sound good, Kyle. Keep up the karaoke. <laughs> For my own preference. Okay. Uh, now you sound scared. <laughs> um, I also want to mention, beyond Kyle's voice, that we are pairing the Lord of the Rings movies with Game of Thrones. Yes. Game of Thrones just wrapped their their uh, last episode yesterday. Yes, of their so. last season. So we thought this would be a good time to kind of delve into Game of Thrones. And we thought, why not? take the time to pair it with one of the biggest fantasy franchises of all of time, yes. besides Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. What what maybe paved the way to kick off the ability for a fantasy show to do so well. Yeah, we'll find out in this episode, I guess. Sure will. Or maybe within the next two episodes. Yes, yes. I'm going to be doing the history segment, so I'll be talking about the history of fantasy films and how they got to Lord of the Rings. And Kyle, you're doing production? I, I'm going to talk about Peter Jackson how the hell he managed to be the one to direct these movies and kind of how the ball got rolling on making The Lord of the Rings because it was a huge risk and most people didn't want to touch it. I'm very excited about that. So I guess I guess I'll take it away. Take it away, take Claire. Take it away, Claire. So I want to start off by saying the first films started coming out around 1880. And I actually didn't the, know it was so— The first Lord of the Rings films? Yes. No. The first, feet, you know— Films, oh, film films. Film okay. films came out around 1880. I didn't realize it was so early. I also think it's relevant to point out that when filmmaking started, 
it was, in a sense, magical. Can you imagine having like seen moving pictures for the first time? Well, there's that story of the train, you know, the first, the, the film train pulling into a station and the audience who had watched it got up and started running away when this train yeah. was going towards the camera because they were so like, uh, they didn't know how to process Pure it. Pure magic. Yeah. Pure magic. And funny enough, the first fantasy films were made in Europe, which I guess kind of makes sense since it's where Western fantasy myths originated from. George Méliès was a French silent film era director and all-around film pioneer. If you want to go look him up, he, what he did for film is amazing and fascinating. He had a background in illusion, and he is credited with making the first fantasy film. His 1899, for a long time I had 1999 written down, <laughs> adaptation of Cinderella or Cendrillon. Cendrillon. <laughs> which is a whopping five minutes and 38 seconds long, is considered by many to be the first fantasy film ever made. After all, there is a fairy godmother who shows up. Yeah, there's magic in it. It's man. magic. It's fantasy. Um, more famously, he made A Trip to the Moon, about a trip to the moon where explorers encounter aliens and bring one back to Earth. As we discussed in our Frankenstein episode, while it might sound like science fiction to us— because when the film was made, the concept of going to the moon was so unfathomable that it would be classified as fantasy. And it was an accomplishment of animation and special effects, and it made Milliers an international star. Um, the very famous special effect is where the spaceship crashes into the moon. The image is pretty famous. I've seen it before, and I'll try and post a picture of it in our social medias. Milliers went on to make other fantasy movies, some being 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and The Thief of Baghdad. German Expressionism, which started around 19, uh, 1910, excuse me, became more prominent in the 1920s and had a huge effect on fantasy movies. Expressionism used atmospheric lighting and camera angles to highlight points of focus in the film and contrast between light and dark. And in very, very broad strokes, German Expressionism tended to focus on the identity of oneself and insanity. It was very influenced by the horror that was World War I. Germany had been devastated both physically and financially by the war, and the fear created by this uh, began to manifest in the expressionist films coming out in the country. So wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. World War I traumatized Germany as a nation as a whole, so they started kind of making the first fantasy films, and World War I traumatized J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah. And maybe helped spurn him on to make the first big fantasy novel. That's pretty crazy. That is really crazy. Wow, beautiful connecting threads, Kyle. It's funny. It is funny. While some of these films could definitely be called fantasy, this movement was actually extremely influential in what would become the horror genre. Because of these high concepts, the filmmakers were forced to develop new effects and lighting techniques to bring their screenplays to life. Some of the best-known expressionist fantasy films were Das Cabinet des Dr. Calgary, The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, about a doctor who may or may not be able to predict, predict future deaths. And Nosferatu, which was made in 1922, which was a vampire movie. It was like the vampire movie. I've never seen it. I've never seen um, either of those, but my uncle, who's a big film buff, loves The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He oh, says really? It's really good, yeah. I would love. Well, reading about all these movies just made me want to go binge and Old watch movies. all of them. Yeah. It was really fascinating. 
Another European movement that influenced fantasy movies was the Surrealist movement. The Surrealists were inspired by Sigmund Freud, who focused on the connection between reality and fantasy, rationality and the unconscious. And with those guidelines, I'm sure you can see how these filmmakers gravitated towards making yeah. fantastical movies. Millier was considered a Surrealist. so Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. I can definitely see that. Um, the most, well, I guess besides Millier, the most famous Surrealist movie at the time is from French director Jean Cocteau's 1946's Beauty and the Beast. I think we talked about it on yeah, our, like, yeah. Court of Thorns and Roses yeah, we episode. Yeah, definitely, we definitely One of our did. first episodes we ever did. And I've actually seen, I've never seen that whole movie, but I've seen clips of it from like a community college film it's class. It's super it's cool. It's super weird. And the the arms are like, the coming out of the walls are arms holding like candlesticks yeah, and stuff. Yeah, and super weird. at the time that was really pushing boundaries yeah. in filmmaking by using new techniques to make inanimate objects yeah. In the Beast Castle move. Salvador Dali was doing also he was. a surrealist filmmaker doing weird stuff. Certainly was. Films. Yeah. You can see like with the surrealist way of thinking that almost all their films could maybe be yeah. classified as fantasy yeah. in yeah. some yeah. way. Yeah. I just wanted to mention the most definitely. famous one, which is definitely fantasy because Beauty and the Beast is yeah. fantasy. Yeah. In good old Hollywood, the 1930s saw a rise of monster films. Uh, some of them we've talked about on our podcast. Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, King Kong. Those are some of the most famous ones. And with all the turmoil and uncertainty in the world, there was a fascination with eugenics and with the idea that with selective breeding, a future catastrophe could be prevented. And this theme and the repercussions of it were definitely explored in these films. Many of these films use miniatures and stop-motion photography to portray the monsters, and these techniques had already been pioneered by the German Expressionist. And while these movies bear more of a resemblance to the horror movies that we see today than the sweeping fantasy epics that I would think of as a fantasy movie, they did have some elements that we would recognize as fantasy. Uh, they tended to be based on exotic fairy tales. They took place in far-off lands with strange and unusual creatures. I think they, an, another thing is that they helped push special effects in films mm -hmm. to closer and closer to that place where you could do more realistic fantasy. Oh, definitely. I think, really interesting. I think also every, what I gathered a lot from this research is that every time the boundaries of technology were pushed— new fantasy films were emerged because yeah. why wouldn't you play with your imagination with these exactly. new uh, developments or also boundaries were pushed to make these ideas come to life yeah um in america these films were coming out during the great depression and were an escape from the audience trying to get away from the hardship of their life and even though films with sound which came out in 1927 could in theory be more realistic films Audiences seem to want to see these fantastical stories more. It was a high point for movie attendance in America. 80 million people went to the movies weekly. That was 65% of the population. Wow, no way. Yeah, it was That's like crazy. how you got away from the drudgery. Yeah, you got to go yeah. see King Kong, smash some stuff. Totally get it. Yeah, get out some aggression. <laughs> In the 1930s, uh, 1938 to be precise, another very influential fantasy film came out, and that was Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And its impact on the genre cannot be overestimated, um, especially in children's movies and how they are still made today. And I, I didn't really want to talk a lot about animation since Lord of the Rings movies are a live-action film, but Snow White is just too important. Yeah, yeah. Um, Disney created the format of the animated fairy tale musical that was a quote-unquote family film or meant for all ages. 
And it's a format that you can recognize today in almost all children's animation movies. Yeah, yeah. And also, you and James did a wonderful episode Aww, on it. Thanks, uh, Kyle. Which, months ago. if I do say so myself, if you're curious to learn more about Snow White, I do recommend that yeah. you listen to it. And also learn about its impact, because it's amazing yeah. how much Disney changed the animation genre or the children's movie genre. All of it, really. Another very influential fantasy movie is a little film called The Wizard of Oz. Yay! Everybody loves The Wizard of Oz. It, they do. I'm going to get to that later. Ooh. It was a direct product of Snow White. Because of the success of Disney, MGM had the balls to put tons of money into the production, and the studio decided to spare no expense making it. And it was one of the first films to prove that audiences would flock to theaters to see color and fantasy. Uh, Color technology had been around since 1917, but high prices and the poor state of the economy kept studios from investing in it. However, MGM was trying to outdo Disney, so they decided to go for it. The movie combined new technologies in sound, special effects, and, of course, Technicolor. And while it did not come close to making the money Snow White did, the movie was still a big hit and is today considered to still be one of the most loved movies ever. Totally Just like you said. Yeah. I love it. Besides children's movies and a few notable exceptions, Hollywood took a break from fantasy in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Sci-fi did remain popular, especially in the 50s with the growing fears of nuclear war and space travel. There was another wave of fantasy movies, which I had completely forgotten about until you mentioned it, and it is more in the style that we would recognize as a classic, like, sword and sorcery fantasy story, and that was in the 1980s. Yes, matte paintings, women in skimpy armor, and Tim Curry as the devil. All things Kyle loves. Yes. (laughs) And why was there a boom, you ask? I asked, anyway. Yeah, why was there a boom? It seems random. (laughs) Well, a little movie that could controversially be classified as fantasy called Star Wars came out in 1977, and it was a bit of a phenomenon. Of course, movie studios wanted to emulate that success, so tried to find the other fantastic stories that would capture that Star Wars magic and box office success. Also, there was a little game called Dungeons & Dragons that we talked about two weeks ago that was doing so incredibly well that the makers of this game had enough money to invest in a train line. I'm not saying they did invest that money, but that's how much money they were making. So along with the Star Wars movies, Studio also chased that Dungeons & Dragons demographic by putting out sword and sorcery movies. Some of the hits from the 80s were Arnold Schwarzenegger's Conan the Barbarian. Yeah! The NeverEnding Story. Yeah. And The Princess Bride. Yeah! (laughs) And these were the popular ones, but there were many that didn't do as well as these. A lot of sword and sorcery films were filled with violence, nudity, and cheesy special effects. They didn't have a high production value and were aimed pretty much at teenage boys. Some have become cult classics over time, and some have thankfully mostly faded from the general consciousness. I just want to say that I recently watched Legend, and while the story's really dumb, all the shots and the effects in it hold up extremely well, and the makeup too. Reading about these 80s movies, I was shocked at how many I hadn't seen and I did want to go watch what? them. They're so cheesetastic. I think I would really it's enjoy amazing. them, actually. I still listen to the Conan soundtrack. It's such a good soundtrack. Oh, I don't think I hadn't seen. I haven't seen Conan. Oh, Claire, you'll we'll hate it. That. You'll love hate it. Okay. 
Well, there were a few hits, like I said. None had the success of Star Wars. And in the 90s, as D&D waned in popularity, Hollywood started chasing other genres to find its mega hit. The adult fantasy movies that came out then tended to be a little less mainstream. The example I read, which I completely forgot, was a fantasy movie, was Edward Scissorhands. That's, yeah. That totally, I, I wouldn't classify that as fantasy, but it is. It's it almost, is. It's like surrealist. It's mm-hmm. almost back to the original fantasy It sure movies. is, yeah. And it has that indie vibe. Yeah. I forget that uh, Willow wasn't popular, was, didn't do well when it came out because I loved it as a kid. I never saw Willow. Oh, it's probably not good. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I loved it when I was younger. (laughs) Right before Lord of the Rings came out, uh, superhero films, which you could technically argue are fantasy, started making a comeback with Spider-Man and the X-Men. Also, the month before Lord of the Rings came out, another fantasy movie called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was released in theaters. I actually didn't realize that they were that close in coming out with each other. I thought Harry Potter came after. No, I remember being in school and everyone was talking about how great Harry Potter was. And then the next month, Lord of the Rings came out and everyone was talking about how much better it was. It's true, though. It is true. And I didn't see Harry Potter, the Harry Potter movies, till much later. I was Lord of the Rings fan, and I I was really happy that it was better. Yeah, yeah. So, Kyle, uh, talk to me about what it took to get this movie made. Well, Claire, with the Lord of the Rings films, which we are discussing today, I would like to start at the top, and that is with one director, Peter Jackson. Yeah, the man, the myth, the legend. The man, the myth. The legend. And the reason I wanted to start with Peter Jackson is because I've seen one of his films that came out before Lord of the Rings, and it it is not something you would think to see from the director of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> and that made me look back on his prior work, and none of it is what you would think you would see of the future director of Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson is a really really bizarre choice to make these movies. And in reading about the story of getting the films made, it becomes a little clear how this barely known director came to be the one that was creating these movies. It wasn't anyone's choice, really, at least not any (laughs) studio exec. It was Jackson's own choice. Peter Jackson and his partner, Fran Walsh, pretty much willed these films into creation. And I want to start off by talking about Jackson's history as a filmmaker, because it is bizarre. (laughs) Now, he was born in New Zealand, which I'm sure everyone knows. He's like the king of New Zealand. Uh, And he grew up watching stuff like Monty Python and those monster movies that were kind of the some of the first bread and butter in the 80s. Yeah. No, no. This is of like the old King Kong. Oh, yeah. This is fantasy of the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. So the King Kong films, Dracula, he especially loved King Kong. And the adventure films of Ray Harryhausen. Now, Ray Harryhausen was a uh, filmmaker in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. um, And he was a pioneer in certain film effects, stuff like stop motion. He did some experimental stuff with stop motion. He was also using stop motion with different camera angles and forced perspective to make clay monsters seem bigger than they actually are. To, to some success. And the the movies that he did were, you know, the Sinbad film. I don't know if you ever saw the old Sinbad no. film. 
Uh, it was I used to watch it with my uncle Frank. The original Clash of the Titans. I have seen that. So yeah, Jason and the Argonauts. Mm-hmm. You know, these a lot of claymation scorpions fighting right. humans, and and how that like he was the one who kind of invented how that could right. be done. It makes sense that Jason and the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans is the same director, but yeah. I didn't know that before just now. Yeah, yeah. And and these are the movies that Peter Jackson loved. And I feel like these influences are really obvious when you look at his filmography. Jackson's favorite film, he stated, is King Kong. And he has technically remade the film three times. Once he remade, the first time he remade it, he was nine years old. And he used his mom's camera and his, his action figures, his toys. And then he remade it again when he was 12 years old, attempting with claymation and toys combined. And then again, he remade King Kong when he was in his 40s, and he subbed out the toys and claymation for CGI effects and Naomi Watts, as you do. As you do. Now, Peter Jackson never went to film school. He just started making films, ridiculous films, almost entirely flops. Peter Jackson's first feature-length movie was called (laughs) Bad Taste. And it was released in 1987, and it was a movie that him and his friends had worked on mostly for free for years, shooting on nights and weekends in between their day jobs and stuff. And it was what is known as a splatter-gore comedy. (laughs) Think um, Ash versus Evil Dead. Yeah, yeah. And it was about a town that is invaded by aliens, bent on and succeeding at using the populace of said town as meat for an alien fast food chain. Oh, my goodness. The movie was banned in Queensland, Australia, (laughs) and only heavily edited versions were allowed in most other countries. (laughs) It's been received well by um, critics, like, in retrospect, like, cult critics being like, oh, yeah, it's, it's great. And it was received well by some audience members at film festivals, he got but it into film festivals. He, That's can, what's you impressive. Get any, yeah, he got it into some New Zealand film festivals. But the critics mostly at the time <laughs> didn't like it. Like I said, it has since gained a cult following. His next film would be another dark, twisted comedy using puppets. And this is the one that I've seen. And it's called Meet the Feebles. It was co-written by Fran Walsh, his future creative partner and future life partner. They still to this day remain unmarried. And she said, when asked about it, she says, if he if he asked, I'd probably say no. <laughs> and Meet the Feebles follows a group of puppets. And I say puppets, but they're more akin to Jim Henson's Muppets. As they try and secure a TV deal for their show, it features sex, rape, drug use, and it ends with one of the puppets committing a shooting spree on the set of the fictional TV show. Whoa. Yes. Feebles was also a financial bomb and was banned in Ireland. (laughs) This is the man who brought us Lord of the Rings. I know. Who saw that movie and said, give that man the budget for three of the most expensive movies ever made? I had a a friend who I used to work with who was super into cult horror films, and that's where, where I kind of got into cult horror films as well. And he's the one who showed me Meet the Feebles. And I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, His next film went back to his trusty comedy gore horror, and it was 1992's Brain Dead. Now, this movie was about teen love in a time of a zombie outbreak in Wellington, New Zealand. The movie was so gory, it was heavily edited in every country that allowed it past their censors. It was banned in Germany, South Korea, Finland, and Singapore. I feel like if you're banned in South Korea for being too gory... It's crazy. That's a thing. That's a thing. That's a thing. Are you catching a theme here of Peter Jackson movies? 
So how did Peter Jackson manage to score the directing job for what would seem like such a high-profile movie? I, that is literally my question right now. <laughs> well, Jackson's next film would be very different from his previous work, and it would net him some high film critic praise. It would also be pushed on him by his partner, Fran Walsh. It was a true crime story about a famous New Zealand murder case from the 1950s. And it would net Jackson and Walsh an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. And it gave them the opportunity to do a Hollywood movie with a big studio, Universal. So what do they do? Wait, this wasn't a big Hollywood movie, but it gave them the opportunity. Yeah, because it got nominated got for, for Oscars. So Universal was like, oh, hey, this young director, okay, we'll, we'll distribute your next film and, and, <laughs> and produce it. And he showed it. them his earlier work. Well, well, what do you think they do when Universal is like, yeah, we'll do a movie with you? Make another horror movie? They go right back to <laughs> splatter gore, comedy horror. <laughs> I, I love how much you love it. It makes it better because you love it so much. It's just crazy. 1996's The Frighteners starred Michael J. Fox. Oh, they got, they got a, some real Hollywood in they there. They got real Hollywood in there. And it would pave the way for some new digital effects being developed by the studio Peter Jackson worked with in New Zealand, WIDA. So it was very, it was in a very, very effects-driven horror film, and it would kind of start opening doors. and And Peter Jackson was seeing what could be done with CGI, and it would also be another terrible box office flop that was critically panned. <laughs> and it would be while Fran and Peter were working on their next movie that doing Lord of the Rings would pop into their minds. Now, Peter Jackson grew up with a love for the epic adventures of Ray Harryhausen, and he always wanted to do an epic fantasy film. Um, I, I think in his mind, kind of in the vein of Jason and the Argonauts mm -hmm. or Sinbad. And he and Fran had also been huge Lord of the Rings fans since they were teenagers. In working on their next film, which was a King Kong remake that wouldn't end up being made for another 10 years, they kept comparing what they were writing to Lord of the Rings. Now, this is a quote from Peter Jackson uh, that he, uh, from an interview he did with Achievement.org. Quote, we just, kept we just kept thinking, saying, well, it's got to be like Lord of the Rings, or it should be just like that, but like more Lord of the Rings. Something like that's got to happen. After a few days of doing this, we thought, well, why don't we just find out about Lord of the Rings? We talk about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so they called Jackson's agent just to find out about the rights and where they were. And they found they were held by a man named Saul Zayance, who had actually produced the animated Lord of the Rings Aww. film of 1979. He still had the rights that he originally got from Tolkien himself. Their agent told them not to bother because Saul would never give up the rights, and he was notorious for that. He would mm -hmm. kind of hold things forever. But Jackson and Walsh had a first-look deal with the company Miramax at the time. And what that means is that any movie idea they had, they had to present it to Miramax before shopping it out to any other studios. So they thought, you know what, we don't have the rights, this other guy has the rights, but this is our idea for a film, let's just tell Miramax this is what we'd like to do. And they can either say, haha, never going to happen, or oh, we'll look into that. So the head of Miramax at that time was one Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. Yep, bad dude. And he liked the idea of a Lord of the Rings adaptation, and he actually was owed a favor by Zayance, the man who, who had the rights. So Weinstein called in his favor on Zayance, and the rights were sold to Miramax, and Peter and Fran were given the go-ahead to make two Lord of the Rings films with a combined budget of $75 million. Oh That's insane. Yeah. They just made a phone. They're like, hey, we have this idea. 
And they're like, here's $75 million. To make this movie, to make two movies. And they had pitched it, originally pitched it like, I th- we think we can do it in two movies because they thought asking for three would be ridiculous. ridiculous. Now, that, that two-movie pitch, which was agreed upon when they first told, brought the idea to Miramax, uh, was changed at the urging of Weinstein to one film. And this is a same quote from Peter Jackson from that same interview. He said, quote, it would be a Reader's Digest Lord of the Rings. It just wouldn't feel right. It wouldn't be something I'd want to have my name on. I was wanting to make Lord of the Rings, not some horrible cut down thing. Because Peter Jackson had asked, oh, hey, maybe just we'll use the money for the first film. And if it does well, you know, we'll make the others. And Weinstein said, no, it has to be the entire story in one film. Had he read Lord of the Rings? He supposedly had his brother, who runs Miramax with him, hadn't. Mm. Weinstein would then try to take the film away from Peter Jackson to give to another director who was willing to do one total Lord of the Rings film. But Peter Jackson's agent got wind of it, and he talked Weinstein out of doing that. He said, quote, Listen, you know you can't just discard them when they brought the idea to you. It was their idea to start with. They have certain moral rights here, and what you have to do is at least give them a period of time in which they can set the film up somewhere else. So funny now hearing someone make a moral rights argument to Harvey Weinstein. To Harvey Weinstein. And you know what? It was a man, and he acquiesced. Mm. Yeah, not surprising. So Harvey Weinstein agreed to give the couple four weeks to shop the film out to other studios before he just took it and gave it as a one-off film to some other director. And they would get turned down by every major Hollywood studio except for one, and that was New Line Cinema. Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh would present their script for two movies to New Line Cinema boss Bob Shea, who would reply, well, aren't there three books? Shouldn't there be three movies? (laughs) He also commented on how making $27 versus making $9, $27 is always better. His idea that like, hey... If we put out three movies, people will buy three movie tickets. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, so New Line was so confident in what Peter Jackson brought to them that they would give him a total budget of $281 million. And they would also insist that all three movies be shot at once, something that was considered a huge gamble and at the time was pretty unheard of. Now, New Line Cinema had had success making trilogy films in a kind of fantasy genre, especially uh, trilogy low-budget films, they had made the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, the live-action ones. That was them. So they're like, yeah, we get kind of, we get, we understand like low-budget, heavy makeup stuff. So let's try and put this on another level for Lord of the Rings with the guy who also made cheesy (laughs) low-budget movies. I didn't mention Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in my segment, and that's on me. (laughs) It was another one of those 80s fantasy films. Yeah. And it was a gamble, obviously, that paid off in droves. The Lord of the Rings movies would bring in almost $3 billion at the box office alone. That's not even including merchandise. Betcha Weinstein felt bad he sold those rights. Yeah, but the deal that was worked out, Miramax still got residuals. So Mm. he also, he still walked away with something. The Lord of the Rings films are still beloved to this day and are largely considered the best cinematic trilogy ever made. It beats out Star Wars in most rankings. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Peter Jackson and his special effects studio, WIDA, pioneered new CGI technology to create the massive armies and creatures. 
Uh, makeup and set production would also be heralded as revolutionary, and the forced perspective techniques used to film The Hobbits is still one of the cleverest moves in film history. And forced perspective was something that he watched as a kid being done with Roy, Ray Harryhausen that he yeah. then took and made better by being able to move cameras around. It's pretty incredible. The films would be nominated for 30 Academy War Awards, as Claire mentioned at the beginning, and they would win 17, which is a record for any film trilogy and any single film. It would pave the way for future fantasy films, proving that the genre was viable. And I want to end with a quote from a piece in the Los Angeles Times from the year 1998 by Patrick Goldstein and called New Line Gambles on Becoming the Lord of the Rings. Until now, fantasy films have largely eluded the grasp of most filmmakers, Bakshi's earlier Rings film was a flop, as was David Lynch's 1984 film adaptation of Dune. But Jackson doesn't sound intimidated by his predecessor's failures. Quote, It's true that fantasy is the one cinematic genre that's never been done especially well, Jackson says. After 100 years of cinema, there's not a lot of new ground for storytelling. We can all point to great musicals or horror films, but no one's really nailed fantasy. So that's the challenge. I want to see if I can pull it off. End mm. quote. I'd argue that no one's nailed epic fantasy. Yeah. Because Wizard of Oz was nailed. Yeah, that's true. But I think uh, I think Peter Jackson pulled it off. <laughs> I think he did too. Now we're going to get into our opinion segment. When we Now that we link two episodes, we like to ask this question at the end of the first episode, the, yeah. the precursor to the, the second. How do we think these two compare? Why did we link them? And did it make sense to link them? Yes. Well, so I, I think this is going to be a really good combination because we specifically wanted to focus on the films. Like Claire and I have read Lord of the Rings, obviously, and Claire's reading Game of Thrones right now or A Song of Ice and Fire, and I've, I've read those books before. But I think we wanted to focus specifically on the movies and the show and kind of the visual medium of fantasy yeah. and how that's progressing. Because it feels like a relatively new thing. It does. And that it kicked off with Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, discounting Harry Potter, which I think is a kind of a separate genre because it's not quite epic fantasy, but nothing besides Game of Thrones has been able to quite hit the marks that Lord of the Rings hit. And that's not saying that there haven't been other fantasy movies that have tried to hit those mm -hmm. marks. Like, Especially after Lord of the Rings. Yeah. After Lord of the Rings, all of a sudden there was a lot more fantasy, fantasy. films and mythology-based films. So I'm excited to see, like, to look at Lord of the Rings as a trailblazer for what Game of Thrones would become, which is, like, you know, the super show it was too. that we all but know and love. Lord of the Rings was a phenomenon in its time. Oh, definitely. I remember it was—you couldn't escape it. It's still—Sir Ian McKellen has a quote saying that he thinks the books obviously are, gonna, are beloved and will be beloved for— a hundred years, and he thinks that the films will go down in cinema history as like films to watch and study, and films that that will be honored in a hundred years. They probably will. I think they will. I mean, even if special effects wise, they don't hold up, which they still do, but you can you can see cracks in it. Yeah, you know, twenty years later, special effects wise, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari doesn't really hold up, but it's still a beloved film, yeah. especially by film students. Yeah. And I could see Lord of the Rings going that way. Granted, we're biased because we're huge Lord of the Rings fans, but I, it, it was such a phenomenon, and it's still beloved so much to this day. Yeah, and it, I mean, it, it's still a, a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. I 
we rewatch it fairly regularly. Yeah. Like, kind of a weird tradition. It's like, yeah. And it's a great time every it's time. Such a good time. It still gives me goosebumps. And after doing all this research on Lord of the Rings, did that change your opinion on why we linked them or should we have linked them? Um, I think in the grander scale, yes, linking these two things is is good and obvious and makes a lot of sense. But I'm going to reserve judgments from a production standpoint. One of the things that shocked me in this research was just the amount of bad movies Peter Jackson had made in a completely different genre than what would become Lord of the Rings. And I'm wondering if there's a similar thing with Benioff and Weiss, Weiss. the creators of of uh, Game of Thrones. What weird movies or TV show skeletons do they have in their closets? <laughs> I would love it if it was a bunch of weird horror stuff. And yes. it would make sense. And it would kind of make sense. If it was a bunch it? of weird horror stuff. I think it was interesting going through the trajectory of fantasy films. Yeah. And seeing how, especially after your segment, Game of Thrones just elevated the game so much. Yeah. But how all these little precursors were, you know. We're kind of building. Each, yeah. each one was kind of a, a brick in the foundation of what would become the fantasy visual the genre. The epic fantasy. Yeah. And that I feel like a lot of it was waiting for the technology to catch up with the vision. Yeah. Because there was the animated Hobbit. But you could do it in animation. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons that uh, Saul, the original owner of the Lord of the Rings film rights, wouldn't let them go. Because he was like, it can't work as live action. The only way it's going to work is if it's animated. And then he later admits, you know what? That was me from my time as a filmmaker in the 70s and 80s. Peter Jackson knows more about the technology of today. Mm -hmm. And if he thinks it can be done, then I guess it can be done. And real fast, since this is an opinion segment, you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings films. Yes, yes. I think that was obvious, but just fan. to state that obvious. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what what is what do you really get out of them, Claire? I think I get less out of them. Well, I shouldn't say that. I miss parts of the book and books in them that they didn't capture, but I don't fault it for that at all because the books are so vast and there's so much in there that. You couldn't capture it in three movies. You would yeah. need to do a Game of Thrones-style TV show. Eight seasons, yeah. But it's funny because when they came out, I was so young that I didn't quite understand the significance of what these movies were. They were just like awesome fantasy movies of books that I loved. Yeah. Um, but looking back on it, and again with this research, like I'm just so impressed that they were able to make fantasy that well. I also think uh, a thing to note is that I think good fantasy means you need a good story. And I think that's what a lot of fantasy misses is like the backbone of a really engaging story. I didn't I hadn't thought about that, but you're totally right. You're totally right. Like a lot of those 80s fantasy films were fun and cool, I guess, uh, and had like some clever effects and some cool aesthetic. But there wasn't really much of a story. You need to love the characters. And in fantasy, in The Lord of the Rings and in Game of Thrones, books and movies, it's the story that you're in it for, mm -hmm. you know? Like, you do love the characters, but you love the characters because they're traveling through this story and they're facing hardships. I I just think the movies are so hopeful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'll they'll get a little dark, but at the end of the day, it it's very much hope will see us through this and, and you know, love will see us through this. And, and there is struggle, but... At the end of the day, you can triumph. One thing that I think is interesting with the Lord of the Rings movies versus the Lord of the Rings books 
and Game of Thrones show versus the Game of Thrones books is that in my mind, the Lord of the Rings movies are pretty separate from the books. They they kind of they evoke a similar feeling, but they're very different for me. Whereas the Game of Thrones show and the Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, the George R. R. Martin series, they're for whatever reason, they're way more interlinked in my mind than the movies. It and might possibly the be because they're finishing the series for George R. R. Martin. I, I also feel like the show added to the books mm-hmm. in some in some positive ways, at least in the early seasons of Game of Thrones. And I don't think that that's necessarily true with the Lord of the Rings films and Lord of the Rings books. To be fair, Game of Thrones had a, a whole TV season Oh no! To oh, add no. to it, whereas Lord of the Rings is trying to cram these books into you know four-hour movies. De- definitely, I'm not trying to take a shot at right. George R. R. Martin in those books. I just, for whatever reason, in my mind, the show and the books are more linked mm-hmm. than the Lord of the Rings movies and the Lord of the Rings book. Yeah, I mean, we can discuss it next episode as well. I also think George R. R. Martin is alive and a consultant on the show. Yeah, Tolkien is. Not alive, and I don't think his estate was thrilled mm-hmm. with the movies. Chris, there, there was kind of a split. Christopher Tolkien was not thrilled with the movies. Yeah, but next week you can hear more of our opinions, and you can learn about Game of Thrones when we come back with that. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby, and I'm Claire White, and we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures: A Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com, and we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find all our social media links on our website, dsrapodcast.com. I can be found on Twitter at klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find our producer, James, at James Foey Jr. That's James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about... The Lord of the Rings films, Peter Jackson's bizarre uh, filmography, and fantasy as a film genre on our social media, where we're going to post links to some of the articles we used in our research. Our producer, whose fictional heroes are Darth Vader, Sauron the Dark Lord, and the Hamburglar, is James Foley. Our logo was done by Patty Highland, who could use a couple more powerful females in Lord of the Rings. I think we all could. And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who is a secret Meet the Feebles fan. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks with Game of Thrones.